0: and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests.
1: In this podcast, we're talking about the phrase fear or favour, because that's actually a key phrase for inspectors. I know when I did my training, that was a real phrase I remembered and took with me. Without fear or favour, we inspect. So I thought we'd have a quick look at the etymology of both of those words. So the word fear in Middle English meant calamity, sudden danger, peril or sudden attack. In Old Saxon, it meant ambush. In Old Norse, it meant harm or distress or deception. And by the late 12th century, the sense became being the state of being afraid or uneasy because of possible danger, a feeling of dread. And then the word favour came around in the 1300s. That's the origin of that word. And it meant originally attractiveness or beauty or charm coming from the old French a favour or approval to praise or applaud. And then actually it's the Latin from the late 14th century where it became used to mean bias or partiality or inclination. So I am absolutely delighted this morning to welcome to our Word Up podcast, Phil Minns. Phil is an HMI and is the specialist advisor for early years and primary. So we'll have some fascinating insight into that world for us. He's a bit of a musicals fan and a real fan of Kate Atkinson, the author, particularly Life After Life. Phil, a very warm welcome to the Word Up podcast.
0: Hi, thanks very much, Helen. It's nice to see you, or hear you even.
1: Uh, (laughs) It's nice to hear you as well. I have um, a lovely story about Phil, which is that back of quite a while ago now, Phil, Not you know.
0: Quite a long time, Revealing
1: a little bit of our age here, Mm -hmm. but uh, we carried out an inspection together of a very small primary school. And it was one of those situations where... If you've been on inspection, um, you know that you often get put in a little broom cupboard and you have to squidge up together and, you know, balance your computer on your knees to do all your your evidence forms. And we had this lovely little school uh, where I went to see a lesson and came back and said to Phil, I've just seen Mr. Poppy.
0: The real Mr. Poppy in the flesh.
1: He actually was teaching in this school. It was Mr. Poppy. And every time after that, because it was such a small school, we saw the teachers quite a lot. It was Mr. Poppy. And I couldn't get that school out of my head for a long time. And now every time I watch Nativity, I'm reminded. So, Phil, I think we're fascinated to know about the journey that takes us where we are now. Um, And, you know, in our profession, it's fascinating hearing about how people started, what their inspiration and passions were. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey in education and, and why teaching in the first place and and where? how did you find yourself where you are now?
0: Well, the teaching was a bit of sort of happenstance, really, because I went to college to do English and history and happened to go to a college where they were also doing a, a four-year B.Ed. in um, early years and spent the first year doing my English and history looking rather longingly at the other course and so transferred um, and went and, and so studied three to eight and doing drama as my main subject, which was really, really good fun. And I absolutely loved it. Really ah, loved it.
1: That's fascinating. And then, so you, you started off in a little primary. Did you go to big primary?
0: I met my wife at college. And so um, we were then looking to, to start work at the same place, you know, the same geographical location. And at the time, some places ran pools where they took on groups of teachers. So we both applied to the Birmingham pool and both got jobs in Birmingham. Um, my wife in itself, Hansworth, just after the riots, actually. And I was starting over um, in Springfield, which was a really exciting school. So going into a school, I mean, I did three to eight, and I, so I had to take a nursery mm. and then got into my first reception class and not one child in that class would speak English as their first language. And many of them really didn't speak very much English at home. So it was a really... Wow. interesting exciting i have yeah. never been so ex- so valued as a teacher in my life as being in that in that first couple of years when i was a dreadful teacher i didn't really know what i was doing at all <laughs> but those parents thought i was doing a wonderful job it was so it's they were so kind and so nice you know
1: what a lovely thing to say do you, do you think your training got you ready for that role
0: oh completely i we had really good early education training really good nursery training and of course going in then even though it was a reception class I was drawing on it entirely drawing on that nursery training to help those children because they didn't have the language so you were really sort of going back into some earlier stuff
1: then fresh-faced did you have a vision of where you might go did you did you see Phil as he is today
0: no not at all um (laughs) I'm a bit of a, a change junkie. I quite like change. Um,
1: In your professional role, so you're Yeah, evolving. everything. Yeah.
0: You know, I, my my children, whenever they come home, get complain that I've moved bits of furniture <laughs> or put something else out or changed a picture or something. I just like change, you know. And so I just went for different jobs and have always gone for different jobs and that sort of... I suppose where you end up where you are is by the, the luck of whether you get or don't get the job or, or the bad luck if you do get it or whatever. You know, you have to sort of take the rough with the smooth sometimes.
1: So if being a fan of change, you're, you're, uh, you're finding your feet in these strange days of COVID then?
0: No, not really, I suppose, because uh, being a fan of change, I'm also a fan of people. I like seeing, I like meeting new people. I like spending time with people that I know. I'm not a particularly good at being on my own. So I find this sort of sat in my attic, you know, chatting to some people, but then working a lot on my own. I miss all of the the social side of work, you know, the, the being with other people and having a chat and a laugh.
1: And yeah. it's, it's yeah. just not the same on a screen, is it?
0: No, not Can't the same. Can't smell
1: the coffee. What was it about early education in particular that, that inspired you? Why that particular phase? Why, is, why does that fuel your uh, passion?
0: Well, it was it was luck initially. I liked the idea of teaching. I had the stunning level of careers advice that you get in school where I did some sort of assessment when I was about 15. And you had to put all these different pieces of information into what I think back now must have been a computer, but obviously it wasn't because we're talking about, you know, the 1600s or something. <laughs> and it said, oh, yes, with all, you know, with your skills, you could be a, a teacher or a social worker. And I didn't really know what a social worker did. So I thought, well, I'd best be a teacher then. And ended up because I had friends who were doing the the three to eight course and had heard what they did. That's why I transferred onto it. But then it's just, I have, you know, and I've been doing it for 30 years now and it's just continually fascinating and you're always learning more. And I think I've learned more in the last couple of years about how young children learn and how, you know, we can best support them to learn than I did previously. You know, it's just, that's part of that, you know, all of that stuff that we now know about the brain that we didn't know before. And there's all yeah. sorts of cognitive science, all of these different exciting things. And also, I mean, it's a great, young children are so fantastic to work with. There was a head, people would always know that I was bored or had hard work to do because I would drift into the reception classrooms and pretend that I was um, helping out, but actually just hiding from work, really. <laughs> They're just nice places to be. Yeah,
1: there's nothing like being around those reception classes mm. to to just boost your mood. They, they're the opposite of a mood hoover. If someone says,
0: yep.
1: stop, you know, if someone says an un, unhelpful comment in our house, we call them a mood hoover. And mm. whatever the opposite of a mood hoover is, that's early years, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've heard it said that everyone's, well, not perhaps not everyone, but people are either radiators or drains.
1: Ah, and, nice. um,
0: you know, reception children are always there's a lot of radiators in there. A lot
1: there. of radiators. Oh, we missed them. Mm. Um you you said you alluded to drama there in your training, you looking at drama. And is that something you had you focused on your career at all when you were in schools?
0: I was dreadful at it. I really, really wasn't very good. And I think now looking back on the lecturer, so it was a four-year degree, and at the time I think we had to do something like two-thirds of a degree in that subject. You had to reach that level, and so we did performances every year. And I can still remember my lecturer's sort of faces dropping whenever I got whenever I was trying to go for a part that was you know bigger than <laughs> a few words because I was just terrible at remembering the, the words. I just couldn't do it, and so I've muffed, you know, made mistakes on stage and things. It was yeah, you know, it it was not. I was not cut out to be an actor definitely.
1: Well, wow. drama fascinates me as as a driver for vocabulary particularly. I'm fascinated by the link between drama and that sort of real visceral experience of language that that you get through character and portrayal of character. And how, you know, how we can use that for our for our benefit. Have you got any yeah. anecdotes or have you seen anything that's been particularly valuable in terms of drama drama teaching?
0: I think, I mean, thinking particularly about the early years and that sort of development of vocabulary, it's it's when you see those those play activities where the adults are really engaging with the child and the language develops as part of that and so the the you know what's what that adult is doing is they're thinking oh I'm going to stretch your vocabulary here but mm-hmm. they're choosing a really really good way of doing that because what they're doing is it's through the the story they're developing with that child or that group of children or they're they're revisiting a story that they know and they're all you know and they they engage the children in it I mean it's that's the Yeah, when you see really good early years practice, that's what you're seeing, isn't it? Is somebody who is thinking on their feet, knowing what those children need to practice, and then coming up with a really engaging way of getting them to do it. So it looks like they're playing. It looks like they're just having fun. But actually, there's all sorts of things going on in that person's brain to draw out and extend the vocabulary that those children are using. I think that's... uh, Creating the right conditions. Yeah,
1: yeah. How long have you been inspecting,
0: Phil? Oh... Uh, About six or seven years, I think, all told. I, um, I was in Ofsted. I've sort of actually been, I think, technically been in Ofsted three times because I was initially, I went in as a seconded, I became a national leader. I've been ahead for about 15 years, became a national leader. And the first thing that I saw that came up was to be seconded into Ofsted for a year. So I went and did that, which was the most. I think the most powerful piece of professional development I ever had. Yeah. Was spending yeah. that time and you know, the-
1: I would certainly say the same. And anybody considering it as a career. Yeah. It's it's fabulous, isn't it? To to really help you see the, the dial of education and what it looks like mm. to be on the other side of the dial.
0: Yep. And I um in I'd been I've been the head of three schools. I'd worked in perhaps six or seven schools in total by that time. And still you think you know what schools are like and then you go out on inspection and you see things that are so different from what you've experienced.
1: Isn't it fascinating how differently we all do
0: it? Yeah, you learn so much by doing that.
1: So in those years, have you you got some highlights you can share with us? What would you say are, are your inspection highlights?
0: I remember some schools particularly fondly I think the best schools are the schools that don't think they're as good as they they are, because what they're doing is they're always driving to be as good as they can be. And that means they've got a really, really clear understanding of what they're not doing well. Yeah. And you go into those schools and those, those schools tell you a lot about what they're not doing well. Yeah. Because that's what's at the front of their brain. I went into an absolutely fantastic school once where the head at the beginning, a, it sort of recognized that she was going to be, you know, that they were going to be an RI school because their results weren't as good as they needed to be. And she'd sort of, you know, she'd prepared herself for that. She was quite an experienced head teacher mm. and she wasn't going to pull any punches. You know, she had this conversation with me quite early on. It's a big school in quite a challenging place. And you know, you, you, we go in and the inspection process, you know, we we inspect without fear or favour. So we, we mm. look at the evidence, you know, people can tell us the school's brilliant. They can tell us the school's rubbish. We have to find the evidence that shows mm. where that school is. This was an absolutely stunning school. They were doing so much for these children and their families. They were running so many things and they you know, the outcomes were not in the top 20% of all of them in the country, but what they were doing was getting those children from compared to where they were. When they left, they'd made fantastic progress. It was a really, really strong school. That is one of the the, you know, the joys of the job is when you can sit down and feed that back to a school yeah. and actually say, yes, you are right that these are areas that you're not doing as well as you would like them to, but actually your recognition of that and the work that you're doing and the work that you've previously done mm. to strive for all this improvement, this was a fantastic school. Mm. It was a really fantastic school. And it's very rewarding to be able to tell a school that and give them that stamp, you know, that recognition that they just so, so Really rewarding, deserve. yeah. Mm.
1: So looking at where we are now, we've got, you know, reports coming out of our ears telling us that the gaps are ever wider now for, for COVID. What do you think the impact's going to be for us in early education? What do you see the remainder of this academic year looking like?
0: I think it's very hard to tell. I mean, and we did some research, you know, we've done various pieces of research and you know, offset over the past last term particularly, mm. where we were visiting schools and finding out things we found a lot of early years providers. And, you know, and inevitably you hear a lot about the gaps um, that some children have gone backwards. I think, I mean, it comes back, I think, to to sort of good practice really. When we get those children back in, it's about being able to identify where the gaps are so really Mm. being clear about you know which we're good at we do that exactly that's that's good practice isn't it Mm. yeah um we know what they haven't learned because they weren't with us so you know if people have had been doing remote stuff they'll ever know what went out but they'll be wanting to check that children have actually got that but particularly i think with young children it's going to be about i mean some of the best places that i've spoken to have said well they said we do this You know, we, when, when new children arrive, we go through a period where we really look at carefully what they can do, what they can't do.
1: Yeah.
0: We know what we've got to prioritize for them. And I think that prioritization is key.
1: Mm. It's
0: really about thinking what's the most important things for this child now. Yeah. And then what's going to be even more important. I mean, it's always been important, but we've never, I don't think we've all got it right yet that information that we provide upon transition and the agreement that we've got with the people who take those children from us about where we've got to Mm -hmm. with them and what they need to do next so that we don't lose anything when they move from one provider or school to another. It's really important that we, in a way that those relationships that we've got with other settings, schools, providers, whatever, is we agree what's really important and what's going to be most important in the long term are going to be the basics for children, aren't they? They're going to be the you know the younger children, will be around prime as they get older, you know, sort of been to reception key stage one. It's going to be about reading, writing and math. Being a fluent reader is so vitally important that we've mm-hmm. got to prioritise that because otherwise we sort of set children up to fail if they can't read fluently. Yeah. And they haven't got the the understanding and the vocabulary that they need. Yeah. So it's I would, you know, I think it's about really knowing what the priorities are and having all that stuff, like you said, you know, what what people do well, which is to to sort of identify the gaps and then prioritize the gaps that are most important.
1: Yeah. That priority is really, really key, isn't it? I was talking to um Moy last week, who's the CEO of the Ted Rag Trust, and she has the phrase relentless optimism. Mm. Do you think that phrase, relentless optimism, is is a guiding light for us as we return to schools?
0: I think, yeah, I mean, I think it should be not just about schools, but about education and children and life. I think mm. it is. We have got to be relentlessly optimistic.
1: Which isn't easy, is it, when we listen to the media night after night? And I don't know why, but bad news sells and, you know, the good news we push to the back for some reason. Yeah.
0: I always think it's a bit like litter in the playground as a head, I used to have long conversations with caretakers sometimes <laughs> who wanted me to somehow ban food from the school or ban children from the school or do yes. something There's too to many stop kids. Yes, the litter in the <laughs> playground. And and I, my view, you know, I, I developed this approach over the years was to say, you know, two crisp packets in the playground does not mean that our entire younger generation are going to pot <laughs> and throwing their rubbish all over the place. I said it's just as likely to be blown in from somewhere else as unless it, is it was to-
1: cheese and onion, because that's not a great flavour.
0: Well, it depends. Like, some people <laughs> may say that's the best flavor, actually. <laughs> They'd be wrong. <laughs> oh. Now we're getting onto controversial ground. That's dangerous. <laughs>
1: uh, I love a crisp a crisp battle.
0: <laughs> oh well, it was it was about trying to get them to realise that it wasn't an indicator of things going to pot. It was just litter happens sometimes it falls out of somebody's pocket sometimes it blows in yeah. it's not and it's a bit like that's that same thing with relentless optimism all the bad news that you hear yeah yeah some bad things do happen but actually we know that for the you know the vast majority of the children that we come across are going to be just great you know some of them have had real problems and challenges but actually the majority will be able to help
1: yeah yeah I'm a big advocate of story in whatever form which is why I'm a particularly fan of drama and music and using all of the you know the forms of story in the classroom. Do you think that we can address the word gap through story in these next few months in particular?
0: I think stories like the key to everything. I think we all benefit enormously from learning through stories. You know that's there's that great thing isn't there about as a teenager it's a it's a protective factor for your mental health and well-being if you read. Because by reading, particularly as a teenager, you understand what other people think and you learn about, you see into other people's brains and you realise that actually other people have a lot of the same concerns and issues that you have. It doesn't diminish yours, but it it reduces the likelihood that you're going to feel different, ab, you know, abnormal from everyone else. You recognise yeah. that there's that's a shared thing. I mean, I think that when we talk about vocabulary, particularly the stuff that we know about the sort of word gap for um, for children at a young age, you know, the fact that some children will have experienced so many more words by the time they're five than other children mm. will. I've all going back to that Hart and Risley research years and years and years ago and other stuff that's sort of proven it since that that word gap is such a significant thing. You know, we, we learn new words up until the age of seven or eight and we by hearing them. And so being, having stories read to us mm you know being told stories we not only learn all those stories but we also learn that interesting vocabulary that we wouldn't otherwise come across and so stories are i think a key but we should i think that it's that thing about putting the stretch in the story isn't it so we're always reading stories to children that they couldn't read themselves yeah so we're always giving them that next step up and i think I've always really enjoyed telling and reading stories. And I used to sort of almost routinely do The Witches for my children. I've got four children who are all grown up now. But when they were younger, I always used to take it on holiday and I'd read to them on the beach and it was like a thing. And sometimes (laughs) I'd be reading them and they would still come and listen to it, you know, even when they were older. Sometimes you'd look up having just finished the chapter and there'll be other people who just sort of earwigging on Uh, (laughs) the story. Because everyone loves a good story, don't they? And, you know, there are some fantastic stories around.
1: I bet you do a good voice. Do you do a good
0: witch's voice? Oh, I could do a fantastic witch's voice. <laughs> my struggle was always remembering which voices I'd used yesterday. <laughs> yes. And then my And trying to said, get the continuity. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so that, I know a good The witch changed location. <laughs> yes. She was German <laughs> <Daddy>. yesterday. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't sound the same. <laughs>
1: That's brilliant. So you mentioned musicals and being a bit of a fan of musicals. Have you got a favourite? Have you got a top tip for us?
0: Classic, I think, is Les Mis, is obviously. Oh. You know, I don't think you can see it too many times. I loved Wicked. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert was a fantastic one. Yes. Um, real high, did you see it with um, Jason Donovan in? I did, actually, yes. Oh,
1: brilliant. It's such a great fusion, isn't it, of of, of story and musical, because you get a mm. bit of everything. They, they do tend to... um. Polarised people aren't, don't they? You're either a big fan or you aren't. Yep. We've, we've got a yep. divide in our family. We, we as a family went to see Matilda and just got swept away. Mm. The music in Matilda is stunning. And I think there's something about When I Grow Up, that song, and they're on the swings, and it's such a mm. tearjerker, that feeling yeah. of childhood and the value and importance of being a child.
0: Yeah. I think that's the thing, isn't it, in musicals. They convey so much story and so much emotion in those songs in quite a short period of time you do cover a huge amount of emotion in that period Mm, it's just so intense and I think you know I, I don't think I've ever seen a bad musical and you always come out better than you went in
1: yeah they're radiators definitely definitely radiators Phil it's been an absolute joy to talk to you this morning thank you so much for coming along and being part of the podcast
0: no it's been a pleasure that's great thanks Helen We hope you enjoyed listening to this Word Up podcast from Oxford Education. To receive bonus material relevant to the discussion, please visit www.oup.com/education/podcasts.